Welcome to Driven Minds. My name is Gigi, and this is a Type 7 podcast. Our guest today is Harley Weir. Harley is a photographer and filmmaker who started shooting professionally when she was the tender age of 19. Just this year, she has shot campaigns and directed films for brands like Gucci, Prada, Marc Jacobs, and Balenciaga. She's also shot personalities like Billie Eilish, Emma Watson, Winona Ryder, Nicki Minaj, Pharrell Williams, but I'm not going to rattle off her entire resume because it would take way too long and we got no time for that. So one of the reasons I wanted to have Harley on the show is because she straddles the worlds of fashion and art with probably the most unique eye of almost any fashion photographer I've seen. One of my favorite art projects of hers is an Instagram account where she takes photos of trash encounters as she makes her way through the world. We're still recording most of our episodes remotely, meaning we get a variety of backgrounds of all kinds. You have no idea. But Harley took the win for the most inventive when she appeared on screen in the middle of a church, like a Renaissance painting. But I'll let her tell you why. So here it is, my conversation with Harley Weir. You owe me a story as to why you are sitting in a church right now. Uh, actually, it's my church. Seriously? Um, yeah, three years ago, my, my boyfriend at the time and I bought a church together and we've been doing it up for the past three years. And I made a lovely garden here. So I just came to harvest the vegetables, which are obscenely overgrown. So they're like huge monsters in the garden. That's what I'm doing here. That's so interesting. So do you hold services or is this... Oh, no, it's a residential property. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. So you live in the church. The house. Yes, I did, but we recently broke up, so... Got it. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a shame. <laughs> I'm in a similar uh, situation right now. I think there's a lot of change going on, isn't there, right now? I hear you. How long ago was your breakup? Uh, we broke up about six months ago. I feel good. I feel fine. There's so many other things going on right now for me that it's um, the least of my worries. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also feel like when you're really into your work, that helps the most. Like I'm in a weird situation right now with the guy that I've been with for the last, like, 10, 11 months or so. And because I'm so slammed right now with work, it actually – it gives me a place to channel all of my anger and heartbreak and all of that into, you know? Definitely. Work can be therapy. And I have seen photography in that way for me a lot throughout my life as like, as a therapy, for sure. In what way? My dad was um, diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's about uh, six, maybe six years ago. Five years ago. I'm so sorry. Time I don't understand time anymore. Um, Me neither. He always wanted to do ceramics, so he bought himself a kiln when he around that time and started doing that as a process. Then I started doing it with him, and it was such a it was such a beautiful way to sort of connect without it being too intrusive, you know, on the bigger issues at large. So that was something that was really special for us. Had you either ever done ceramics before, or was this uh, your your foray together? Yeah, that was my first foray into it. And it's just such a, it's such a, it's, it's kind of like gardening, which I also love and I find mm-hmm. to be like a really important therapy in my life. It's just like being connected with the earth 
doing things mm. with your body physically. It's like really important. We do so little. Like I feel like everything is like a JPEG now and that really disturbs me. So it's really important oh. for me to like do something physical that's like serves a function, like especially gardening. Actually, I find that really like soul healing. Let's say that. Yeah. I think there's something so powerful about doing something physical and getting out of your head and into your body. And especially when it comes to gardening, two years ago, I invested in houseplants and I was convinced I could never keep a single houseplant alive because I never had in the past. And seeing these things that are alive grow in front of my eyes and know that it's because of my nurture has been one of the most rewarding (laughs) experiences in the last two years as you know, as grandiose as that sounds. That's where it started for me as well, actually, with houseplants. And then um, obviously I got a garden here at this church and just started to grow stuff. And it was just so really exciting. I've actually like, I've not been back here for a couple months and like the amount of stuff that's still managed to like grow is insane. I've got like so many Mm -hmm. courgettes, so many beetroot, like so many tomatoes, pumpkins, squashes. Like, yeah, so little, little work done. I just put the seeds in and I came back months later and they've they've grown which is so nice it's really special to have a garden I think have you had church ragers yes and Halloween is coming up and I'm tempted to have another Halloween party here oh my god Halloween's my favorite time of year same what was your best costume uh I usually I usually have a party on Halloween so I'm usually like actually don't have enough time to think about the outfit because I'm like making weird food and like mm-hmm um, thinking out weird names to call them, like sick cakes or like shriveled penis, <laughs> like padron peppers, stuff like that. Ooh, that's witty. I like it. This year I have to think of something good. Although I have a lot of leftover things from a shoot, a self-portrait shoot that I did recently. So I think I've got quite a lot of material to work with. Yeah, I don't see you um, in front of the camera almost at all besides your self-portrait series. Was this the first time that you were in front of the camera? Um, yeah, it's very rare. Like since the beginning of Instagram, which I probably had for a decade now, probably. Anyway, I have never posted a picture of myself on my Instagram ever. Any particular reason? Um, I never really wanted to have my my image on my Instagram because I didn't want the way I look to come before my work. And I think as a woman especially, I think men too, but especially as a woman, you get defined by your looks. And I I didn't want to be like categorized or like, Mm. I didn't want people to think of the way I look before they thought of, you know, what I thought. I wanted to be respected and I felt like I may not be respected because I often find that the way I looked wasn't a way that was respected. I always looked very young as well. So I, I feel like I have a bit of a demure look and I didn't also want that to sort of like spread out into my work. So interesting. So it was more a consequence of you being a young female photographer that made you reticent to post any photos of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I just felt that people might think of me differently. I remember the first time I went to a, I had my first big shoot. It all went really badly wrong, like so badly wrong. Like the model got hypothermia. No. The crew was sort of like, God, they were like, God, the model's so young. She's only 19. And they were like, how old are you? And I was like, I'm 19. And they were like, oh, oh, oh my God. And then like later after they found that out, then they, um, after, when the model got hypothermia, they asked me to, to model for it. And at the time, like now I would have been very like, I would have been like, fine, of course. But like at the time I felt very offended. I don't blame you. I'm being forced to uh, be in the images as well. And I just felt like there was a lack of respect because of my age and the way I looked. And so 
after that, I definitely, I lied about my age for years and said I was much older than I was. I did that too. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, yeah, keeping my image away sort of felt like a way to preserve my integrity. <laughs> what was that job when you guys were both 19? It was a Urban Outfitters shoot. Urban Outfitters at 19. I mean, that's a huge brand. I know. Only like a few years before that, I'd been like caught shoplifting there. So I was really paranoid that um, they'd find <laughs> out that I was banned from their stores. But luckily, they didn't find out. <laughs> I love that. Well, listen, clearly Carmen did not bite you in the ass for that one. Carmen did bite me in the ass. The model got hypothermia. And then it was an absolute <laughs> disaster. And I absolutely was like... I mean, I wasn't a big shoplifter anywhere. I just, I was just a, a random occasion that I decided to shoplift something because I didn't have the money to buy. But I got caught and I got put in the book. And actually the week before I did the shoot, my friend who worked in Urban Outfitters at the time sent me a picture of it and was like, look who I just found in the uh, shoplifters book because they took Polaroids of you at the time because it was obviously like years ago when I was like 16. And they looked t- took Polaroids of you and put them in this big book of shoplifters. Oh um, my God. So I'm in that book. And I was really freaking out, thinking, oh, my God, my friend, like, last week just found out that I'm shoplifting there. Now I've got this job. Like, oh, my God. And karma definitely, or maybe it was me that did it. My own guilt forced the shoot into disarray. A book of people, girls who have shoplifted from Urban Outfitters is an incredible coffee table book. It would be an amazing book, actually. (laughs) Urban Outfitters, if you're listening, you should bring that out. You have to author this. I would absolutely do it. I would have my picture on the front cover. <laughs> I have a really stupid haircut, though, so you'd never recognize me, thank God. I also read that around 16 or so is when you also took nudes of your then-boyfriend, which you posted on Flickr. And that is a righteous move, and I adore you for doing that. How did the idea come together to do that? Um, I think I, like, I always, I guess I always worked around the idea of the muse because I love people and so like originally I started photographing my sister because I would paint from images of her that I'd photographed and then I would start photographing my boyfriend's um just private stuff really and then some of the images seemed to be so nice that I decided to start sharing them and that's kind of how I ended up working in the industry because someone saw my images that I would post of like my my sister my friend my family and my friends boyfriends things like that and then kind of came from there And how did he feel about his nakedness being posted on Flickr? I think he liked the ones where he thought he looked good and he wouldn't (laughs) let me put any images where he he looked skinny or anything like that. So I didn't didn't put those images anywhere. Um, Obviously, they were very doctored and um, chosen. So they weren't really so private in the end. I heard that Flickr helped start your career. Um, yeah, definitely. So I, I used to upload images of my friends and family and then um, from there someone asked me to do a photo shoot and then the rest is history, as they say. I was studying fine art at Central St. Martins, but I don't know why, but I always like really felt the need to be independent. So I, I wanted to um, mm-hmm. work while I was at university, which I didn't realise was actually a really bad idea. Why? Well, because obviously, really, when you go to university, you should be concentrating on your studies and learning, but I was trying to make money to pay for my studies, which didn't really make much sense at the time. Um, So I started working as a photographer while I was doing my my fine art degree, and that obviously distracted me from actually working (laughs) there because I was busy trying to 
pay for it. So you're in college. You've done your Urban Outfitters shoot. You're 19. At that point, what was your best case scenario that would happen after art school career-wise? I think I I always wanted to be an artist, but I just it, I didn't realize that that was actually a job option. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was possible to make money out of art. Like, I really just didn't. Um, I don't know if that was my parents or who or what. My uh, my mum mm-hmm. um, was an artist when she was younger and she was never able to make it in that way. She ended up being an art teacher um, amongst other billions of things. But I don't know why, but I just found it to be, like, so pleasurable. And um, it came so easy to me, but I, I just didn't at least have the confidence to ha- to think of that as a, as a work practice. It also felt so sacred as well, and there was something very... Mm-hmm. Something I didn't like about the idea of like selling my artwork. Mm. I think you have to have a lot of confidence to be an artist because you have to really believe in your own voice. And I think that is something that doesn't come especially easy, especially to maybe women of my generation. Yeah, I just didn't really think that anyone would want to hear what I was doing. But in the end, it looked like people did. Yeah. So I came back to art in my own way. I hear you. I minored in fine art, and I'll never forget when my professor asked us, who in this room can call themselves an artist? And about two people raised their hands. That's a hard thing. It is. And the point he was making was, if we couldn't call ourselves artists, then no one else would. And I was so hesitant at the beginning of my career as a journalist to claim my respective title and call myself a writer, even though it literally said features writer on a Condé Nast masthead, I could not do it. Yeah, why is it so hard for you to accept? (laughs) Totally. I think I'm just coming around to the idea now, but it's taken a long time. When was the first time you felt anxiety? Ooh, anxiety. Oh, well, I used to get it all the time because I used to never do my homework. And I remember when she'd say, and now we have to hand in our homework. And then I'd go, <gasps> and it'd be like a stab. And I'd be like, oh, fuck. And I genuinely would be like, I forgot again. And like, I would just forget every lesson. And they'd be like, Harley, we're, you forgot now. And detention, detention. So I, I had a lot of anxiety. I still get dreams that I did not do my math homework. <laughs> Me too. And I wake up like panting. <laughs> And I'm like in my 30s. That's exactly what happens to me every day. That's just my actual life. They were like, the edit, it's due. And I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) Nothing's changed. Is that like the modern day version of you getting anxiety about your homework? Yeah, my job is 95% homework. (laughs) Um, So that was a bit stupid of me not to have done any of my homework my whole life. Are you a procrastinator even now? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm the worst procrastinator. It's awful. But I think there's an element of that in everyone. The blessing and the curse of a deadline is that it's there so you know that there is a final time at which point you cannot work on something further. The curse is that I will wait 12 hours before that deadline to start like a huge... I really respect people that can manage their homework. I find that to be like an extremely sexy trait in a person. I'm like, wow. I do too. That's so hot. You can manage your own, especially if it's your self-homework. No one's going to punish you if you don't do it. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. You are so, so cool. Yeah, and especially like those people that like commit to reading like 20 books a year and then they, they actually hit that mark. I love people that get shit done. How does anxiety manifest for you now? 
besides being petrified of deadlines? I have like webbed toes. Ashton Kutcher is a famous person who has webbed toes. Oh, I had no idea. Uh, I have webbed toes and I used to get so much anxiety about that, like especially before PE, physical education. Mm-hmm. I would be like, I can't, I have to wear socks because I've got verrucas. And they'd be like, okay, you can wear a sock on the foot that has veruca. And I'd be like, well, I have verrucas on both feet. And they'd be like, okay, disgusting girl. You can wear socks on both feet. And I'd be like, thank God, no one has to see my disfigurement. Um, So like for years, I tried to avoid anyone seeing my feet until I finally wore Birkenstocks at the age of like 15 and realized that no one gave a shit at all. And I was like, haven't you noticed anything? And everyone was like, Harley, what's wrong with you? I also do this poll the audience thing where I will ask friends or... (laughs) I've also done this to like random strangers and be like, do you see anything? Do you see anything? Like it really is kind of a form of like OCD body dysmorphia. (laughs) I I mean, that's, that's seriously like, that's how I at least got diagnosed with it. Cause they're just like, you realize like no one sees this and like, why are you asking 2000 and a half people? And people really don't care that much. No, no one gives a fuck. Did anyone notice your webbed toes? No. No. When I showed them, they were like, they were like, no, they're not webbed. And I was like, yeah, they are. And they were like, they're not. And I was like, yeah, they are. And they're like, oh, yeah, they are. Wild. And then I'd be like, see, I'm a freak. Did you take that lesson with you that no one gives a fuck? No. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Neither did I. I will see a therapist soon. Congratulations. It's a huge step. By the way, it took me 12 years to see a therapist, and I had, like, crippling anxiety and OCD. So that's a bold move. Yeah. <laughs> no, wait. I haven't actually planned one yet. <laughs> I haven't actually made it. But you're going to. to It's in your mind. The wheels are turning. Yeah. Have you ever done therapy before? Um, Over lockdown, I did like a few weeks of therapy, but I just felt like I felt like I was like drunk at a party and I was like cornering like some poor girl and just like, (laughs) like, my mom doesn't love me. And I was just like, I don't really know if it's helping me. (laughs) Was it an actual therapist? No, it was a therapist, but I mean, it made me feel like, you know, when you're at a party and you like open up to someone random by accident or something and you're like, then you feel really bad afterwards. And I was just like, I don't really know if this is like functional for me, but I know that I'm clearly got problems if I think that, but yeah, it just, it takes a long time, I think, to find the right therapist and I'm lazy. I so hear you on that. And I also so relate to the drunk girl feeling where you feel like really guilty for like pouring out all of your problems. And I swear to God, the only thing that helps me get through that with a therapist is knowing that I am literally paying them for their time and that they have no choice but to sit and listen to me. But that feels even worse. (laughs) And then I'm like, and how are you? And then I'm like, oh God, this feels so weird. I had a Freudian psychoanalyst who, and by the way, do not do psychoanalysis. I did psychoanalysis after studying Freud in college. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. It's so avant-garde, but so old school. So I went to a Freudian psychoanalyst and I was not used to this kind of therapy. And, you know, I love talking to people. I mean, clearly I have a podcast, do it for a living and love hearing about other people. And this guy was a concrete wall. Could not get anything out of him. I'm like, are you married? Are you from New York? Literally would sit there and stare at me (laughs) and I would just be talking to myself. So I hope you are not going to a Freudian or Lacanian psychoanalyst. That is, this this is, consider this your warning. What do you think, where do you think I should go? (laughs) Talk therapy for me has been incredible. And in studies, there is What's talk therapy? It's just when you talk back and forth to a therapist about your problems and you're not prescribed any 
medication. And by the way, talk therapy can also be with a friend, but I mean, it's, you know, it's better to, to pay someone to listen to you, in my opinion, unless you have, like, do you have a lot of friends that you feel you can just talk to? Like, do you have a good network of people? Actually, I do feel like I have a good network of friends that help me out a lot for them. And I know that it would be good for me to get a therapist so they could have some time off. You mentioned you were doing art therapy with your dad. Yeah, so me and my dad um, would make ceramics together and we did like a, an auction um, and made money for Alzheimer's research charity, which was very fulfilling. And it's about time I did another um, uh, charity project because I have to say that's something that like brings me a lot of happiness and fulfillment in my life. If I don't have like those projects like alongside my work, it, it, it feels very hollow. And at the moment, I'm feeling quite inspired to do something around the idea of like old people's homes, obviously. Um, having visited quite a few in the last few weeks, um, they are pretty terrifying places. If Is that what your dad is going into? Yeah, he's in one now, but he's going to be, we have to look for like a permanent one. They're quite grim places, most of them. So it's definitely inspired me to think of like ways in which that I could um, give back or volunteer in some way. I used to play piano at an old people's home and Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I also get really affected by seeing elderly people, especially elderly people who are alone and don't have a partner or a family. It no, nothing pulls sad. on my heartstrings like that. And that coupled with it's sad. watching it is and like watching your parents get older and that slow transition of starting to take care of them when they've always mm. taken care of you. Like nothing can prepare you for that, in my opinion. Absolutely not. But music therapy is big. Like I, I'm, whenever I go and see my dad at the moment, I, I play him like all these old songs that he used to like and he just absolutely loves it. And he still remembers words and things like that, you know. Yeah, music therapy like is part of the brain that never people never forget. So it's pretty, pretty cool. What was your first big gig? Um, I can't actually remember what the first one ever. I did I did a first fashion shoot, which was for Vice magazine. Okay. It was I was really into Polaroid at the time, so it was all only Polaroid only. Lots of filters and like weird <laughs> of course. Dreamy pictures of girls in the bath. <laughs> mermaid situation. Very mermaid. I've always been a big, big on mermaids. Did you feel insecure stepping onto set or were you like I fucking got this I've got Polaroids they're interested in my I work mean, I clearly have a vision <laughs> there wasn't any set <laughs> they well they said oh I think they said you know something like we've got 200 pounds budget and I was like oh my god wow oh my god this is insane and I spent like I don't know bought two Marks and Spencer sandwiches two rolls of film and then just photographed some some girlies so I was like, this is amazing. Wow, I can be creative, but I can also make money from it. So it wasn't scary at yeah. first at all because it was like so low-fi. It was not like when someone thinks about a photo shoot, it wasn't that. So it didn't feel scary at all. I felt very privileged and I've always been grateful. Gratitude is a really good resting place. I think so. I think the only thing it can hold back, though, is that you feel so grateful that you don't know your worth and you just do whatever is asked of you. And I think I always felt so grateful that it held me back because I was um, happy to do quite a lot of crap <laughs> for a long time mm -hmm. and didn't really know my worth 
for years and 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 years. I still don't know mine. Yeah, it's hard. It is. Hard to say no. It is really hard to say no. I think the idea of disposability is recurrent in that you should be grateful to be where you are because so few people even get a chance to enter the photography game, let alone in the capacity that you have. And there is a lot of truth in that. But yeah, I think everyone gets where they're going in different ways. Like I got to a place by literally saying yes to everything. (laughs) And then I really respect and like I'm in awe of people who, you know, are like, they say yes to like one thing a year and then like it finally works out for them um or whatever you know like being like really hardcore and I love that I find that really like sexy when was the first time you picked up a camera my mom used to give me disposable cameras actually uh so I would photograph on like school trips like to the farm or like a trip to Paris and things like that and she would always give me a disposable camera so I always remember having those and I'd make scrapbooks out of them And in your childhood, did you feel your parents were approachable or is the British cliche that Brits have a hard time accessing and expressing emotion true at all? Uh, Well, I was lucky to always have art as part of my life. So there was like, there was, there was a fluidity there that was different maybe to other families, but my family didn't necessarily talk about things at all. I do feel like I grew up in a very free environment. They didn't really force me to do too much to the point of like the fact that I've probably never done a piece of homework in my life and I'm suffering greatly every day on every assignment to this day because of that. Yeah, I lived in a very like free kind of like, I mean, I would see my parents walking around naked. So we were very like open in that way. We're only kind of coming around to talking about things now really, which is a long time overdue. Why do you feel your parents are more open to talking about them now? Because a lot of times when parents get older as well, they almost become more stuck in their ways. So I love to hear that it's kind of the reverse. It's a funny one because I, I think we, my, in my family, we use like humor to kind of like um, express a lot of emotions. So British. So it's complicated. So we, we do, we are so British. We do like communicate, but it's like, yeah, it's definitely not very straightforward. Um, but it's something I've worked on. I've dated American, an American for four and a half years, and that sort sorted me out quite a bit with talking. Do you think Americans are more emotional than Brits? I wouldn't necessarily say emotional. Just we're really different. I think the humor is actually really different, weirdly, even though we've like grown up looking at uh, American humor so much. It, it's so different. I was with a British guy a year or so ago and he accessed his emotion was able to access his emotions better than I even could so that he was definitely one of the people that dispelled that myth for me yeah there's no rules I mean I do feel like all British people have a get out of jail free card because they have an incredible accent like you can say anything or be anyone or look like anything I don't know about that (laughs) No, my God, you absolutely do. I have guy friends in America that are British. They come over and they tell their friends in London, they're like, listen, dude, like if you come over to the U.S., like, you know, the girls will be all over you because just because of the voice. It's true. It's like the cult of the English person. Maybe. I'm not sure. I don't know how well I do in America. I guess I did have an American boyfriend. 
So maybe it did work well for me, worked in my favor. Yeah, there you go. But I've got plenty of American friends, so I speak American fluently now. I have not a bad British accent, right? Like, if I spoke, you'd believe me. Actually, not bad. But I would say that when American people try to do an English accent, it sounds like a, someone, someone who can't hear. <laughs> like, it sounds like a British person who can't hear. Yeah. Like, not in a bad way, just that's what it sounds like. <laughs> but it's actually not bad. You should try it again. Thank you so much. I'm going to rub this in my producer's face. You've no idea. As a fellow Brit. It's not too bad. I've definitely heard worse. You're fluffing my ego. Really? Honestly, you're awesome at it. It's really cool. Wait, why are you so good at an American accent? I really don't know. I honestly, I guess I've been around like quite a lot of Americans in my life. So it's hard for me to like not pick it up a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Right? (laughs) I'm literally dead also your entire persona just changed like you're no longer harley weird really i know right (laughs) i'm living behind the mask i'm deceived now i'm like hot girl harley it's totally different (laughs) (laughs) she's a wanker that one though i can tell she's not very nice my american girl In the 2010s, like nine out of 10 shoots had a male photographer on the call sheet. And you were female in your early 20s at this time and probably not who most people would expect to show up on set as the photographer. I'm wondering if you had a similar experience to what I went through when I started DJing at clubs in New York. And I would walk in 30 minutes before the club opened and the staff there would immediately assume that I was a bottle girl and direct me to the dressing room. And obviously there's nothing wrong with being a bottle girl, but the bartenders would be kind of like condescending and the DJing is a guy's job kind of way. So I'd have to work extra hard to prove them wrong. And I'm wondering if you had a similar experience. Yeah. There was a a guy who I used to work with. Um, and when I arrived to the shoot, because we'd done a few shoots like um, – you know, not met each other. And I remember when I f- he first met me, he was like, oh, what? Like, you're a woman? I thought you were a gay man. Um, oh. And I think he'd been hiring me that whole time thinking, you know, like, we might hook up or something. <laughs> because no. he looked at my work and thought, oh, naked guys. Like, he's probably, oh, so probably this is a hot naked guy. Oh. Um, so I definitely had that a few times. I had loads of times when people thought I was the assistant. I arrived to one shoot once and like someone I was working with was like, oh yeah, I've worked with Harley before. He's great. And then I was like, "Uh, it's me. Stop. Oh, that is cringe. Yeah, it's really cringe. (laughs) But like, yeah. And then I've had, you know, plenty of people like, you know, think I'm a makeup artist or I mean, once, twice, people all thought I was a model and I was more than happy with that. No, it was rare. Maybe get in front of that camera, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was rare, but it happened. Um, but yeah, usually it would be like an assistant or, um, yeah, I definitely don't look like a photographer. I didn't at the time. Now I guess I do because there's hundreds of female photographers, but it is really different. It's funny because I don't even feel that old, but I feel like so much has changed in the last 10 years. Um, how old are you? I'm 34. So I've been working in this industry for like 15 years, I guess. Did being young and female also give you an advantage on set in any way? I think it allowed um, a lot of people to open up towards me maybe because I so 
demure looking that I probably didn't. I also dressed for about, for about 10 years. I literally had like a brown mouse phase. I didn't want to be looked at in a sexy way. I didn't want to be, just didn't really want to be looked at. So I kind of dressed like a brown mouse for about 10 years and I looked really nothing. I literally just wore an anorak for like 10 years and like cut my hair short and just like didn't wear. What's an anorak and what's a brown mouse? And a brown mouse is just a little brown mouse, you know, just a little brown mouse. And anorak's like, you know, what you wear for the rain. Is that an expression? No, I just like, I literally just wore a rain mac for like. No, I love it. For like 10 years. I literally just wore like an anorak. That's very normcore. (laughs) I was really normcore for like 10 years. Um, And I do think that benefited me a lot because sometimes I think women do find each other to be competition and then guys just think of you as a piece of meat. So Mm -hmm. it did benefit me to look like nothing for like 10 years. Also, there's just something very cool about someone who doesn't care, I will say. I've never really been able to be one of those people, but I've always admired those who can. I went very far in that direction when I was a teenager. I was like, I had like a birthmark on my face, which was actually adorable, but I thought I was a freak. It was like a, it was like a red star on my cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just spent my whole school years being called like Pikachu. That's awful. Kids are so fucked. Like people would be always be like, oi, like you've been smacked in the face. Or they'd be like, oi, like you've got a hickey on your face or, you know, like every day was like, ugh. And I remember even when I was a kid, I would like go into this laundrette because we'd go to wash our clothes. And I remember the woman there every day, we went in like once a week. She never remembered that I had that on my face and she'd always grab my face and be like, oh my God, what happened to you? So like, I don't know, like I basically grew up thinking I was a freak amongst all my other body trauma things. So I would wear about six, from about 14, I probably wore about six tons of makeup like troweled it on um, and I used to wear like my hair on one side of my face to kind of cover it as well and then finally when I was 16 I got it removed Um, but it didn't actually work but I got it a little bit removed so it's like almost gone and now it just looks like rosacea so everyone's like oh you can fix that too but whatever I've got really red cheeks so let's put it that way Um, but yeah that really like ignited me into being like quite a superficial teenager and I think when I get Gain, went into my 20s I really wanted to move away from that because I looked at myself and I thought that's sad you spend like an hour doing your makeup in the morning and I not to say that that's wrong and I know that a makeup is extremely popular now mm. um, and I will not spend more than like five minutes doing makeup now I won't because I don't want to be I don't want it to take away from my intelligence and stop me from like learning or reading or doing something good with my time because I don't want to be spending my time doing makeup but yeah, I definitely went like a polar opposite of that because I was quite a trashy, makeup, glittery teenager and I felt kind of ashamed of of that. I think makeup and dressing up can either be incredibly empowering or something you do out of insecurity or maybe honestly a mix of both. But I know when I have my makeup done, like I will walk differently. I have different confidence levels. I... I do feel empowered, to be honest. I guess it's like wearing a mask, isn't it? Yeah. Because you don't have to be completely yourself. And I think I definitely love dressing up for that element because I don't, I love not having to be myself, um, which is, sounds really mad, but I think everyone must have a little bit of that inside of them. But like, it also unfortunately benefits you, especially as a woman, the more makeup you wear, the more seen you are. It's weird. Um, it's crazy. It's, I guess it's also like a sort of 
a sex war paint. You put it on and it's like, I'm ready for sex. You know, um, I love people who have a fashion sense that is like not made for the opposite sex or the same sex or whatever. I, I, I think it's really interesting when people dress that, you know, you can tell they don't give a fuck and it's just like, it's for them. And you know that it's not going to like be something that like just attracts people to you in a sexual way. Um, and I love that kind of dressing up. That's you and your anorak girl. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't know, like, um, I don't want to go back to that because yeah. it was boring. But now I've come back into my trashy phase. Um, the cycle has repeated. It's trendy. <laughs> it's trendy to be a trashy little bitch now. So <laughs> why not? It's, it's in me. It's been desperate to be coming out for a long time. <laughs> I also love your trash Instagram account where you take close-ups of discarded stuff. And by the way, I'm equally obsessed with trash. My favorite philosopher of all time, Walter Benjamin, says only by looking at the detritus of society can we fully understand the inhabitants. What led you to create this masterful piece of beauty um really I think I was really sad like one day and I was just like sometimes I would take like walks at night um just wandering around and I moved to Camberwell at the time and it was near Peckham and so I'd walk to Peckham and Peckham was just like filthy it was covered in trash there's just trash everywhere um and I'd kind of almost use it as a form of therapy so I would like photograph the trash and it would just be like it would be like a form of therapy for me. So I would kind of just like, yeah, go out at night and photograph trash um, when I was feeling down and it would make me feel happy. But it also made me feel sad because I'd be like, oh my God, there's so much plastic and trash in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that did also feed into a lot of environmental things that I tried to do. But then um, I have to say, since lockdown, it feels like a oh, big, big, big problem that is fucking like, very impossible to um, rectify, especially if you work in fashion and you t- fucking take flights. But traveling is like, is knowledge to me. So it's hard to kick that. How do you get yourself out of a sad space or is it mostly just the trash? Yeah, when I'm in a sad place, I also love to do gardening and like tend for my plants. Mm. I think it takes you out of yourself. Totally. And you're looking after something else. Um, especially I like like vegetables and, you know, produce it's kind of taken over my sort of pretty plants. Mm-hmm. I get I get really excited, like the first tomato of the year and things like that. And all of those things just excite me so much. And it it kind of like is almost like yeah. it's almost like a religion, you know, because you feel like so close to nature and you feel like all encompassing, like, you know, like one. So like I'm not religious, but that kind of like feeds into my well, yeah, just into my happiness because I feel like at one with nature and it just feels so right. And it feels like I'm connected to the world when I do gardening. What drives you? I sometimes ask myself that question. Um, I think knowledge. I know that sounds a bit crazy, but I feel like that's like the key to my happiness is that I just as long as I'm always learning, it's exciting for me. Mm. That's how I stay happy. Like any, you know, like horrible encounter I have, I'm like, I'm learning. And it keeps me happy and it drives me. You know, so like Mm -hmm. it drives me to to find more knowledge and it also drives me to happiness because as long as I'm learning something, whatever bad things are happening to me, it feels okay because it feels, you know, that I'm learning. 
That, my friends, was Harley Weir. You can follow her on Instagram at Harley Weir, W-E-I-R, and me at Gillian Zagansky. As always, I want to hear what you think of this episode and all the episodes and every episode. So slide into my DMs and spill the beans. Also, please do not forget to subscribe and rate us so we know that you're listening and like the show. Until next time. <laughs>